This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Adi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. Shabbat shalom, everybody. Okay, my last, last sermon at Ikar, or last, last official anyway, I'll be back. <laughs> um, one, of the, one of the things I've loved about the job of, of the rabbi is learning the art of the drasha, the idea that, that when we get up and we speak on Shabbat, we're expected to be doresh, to, to interpret, to seek meaning from, and to say something about the parsha the weekly Torah reading. Because, you know, I'm a, I'm a Parsha guy, as many of you know that. The study of the weekly Torah reading is, is at the, really at the center of my, my life, my, my spiritual life, my intellectual life. So it's my last sermon at Ikar, and so the big question for me immediately is, well, well what's the Parsha? So I look it up. You know, it got delayed one week, so. I look it up. What's the Parsha this week? Ah. Oh. Parshat Sav. Oh, no. As some of my esteemed rabbinic colleagues and I joke around, I won't, I won't name any names, but it's like, uh-oh, it's Parshat Sav. And it's like you can't ever say that this is the worst Parsha uh, because it's the Torah and every word of it is divine, but Parshat Sav is uh, difficult to work with. If you get assigned it, you right away start thinking to yourself, oh, what is, what is there to talk about? Noah, you did <laughs> a great job with it. Um, because Parshat Sav, the second reading in Leviticus, which is a notoriously difficult book, is basically a repeat of Parshat Vayikra, the first reading in Leviticus, which itself was difficult reading, but at least it had a lot of new information, the details of the various sacrificial offerings to be brought in the temple. Parshat Sav is mostly a repetition of those exact same sacrifices now said over to the priests who will carry them out. Savet Aaron, vet banav lemor, Moshe, you command Aaron and his sons and say to them what I just told you in the last parsha. Oh, it's my, it's my last sermon. But wait, I look at the calendar again. It's Shabbat Hagadol. I'm saved. Shabbat Hagadol, the Shabbat before Pesach, we refer to as Shabbat Hagadol, which is like big Shabbos, big Shabbos. And so I can talk about anything. Shabbat Hagadol is one of two Shabbats a year when traditionally the rabbis would give a drasha. Now you get to hear from us every week, lucky you. Um, but once upon a time, there would be only two sermons a year. Although... They, they could last hours, so get, get ready. Um, there was one between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, that's Shabbat Shuvah, uh, calling on, on us to repent. The rabbi would get up and give a drasha, repent, repent. And one before Passover that prepares us for the holiday and for the retelling of our people's core narrative, and that's Shabbat Hagadol, big Shabbos. So I can talk about anything. Anything, but it has to be big. So what shall I talk about? 
Well, it turns out there is something big in Parshat Sav. One of the biggest topics in the tradition, actually, and it is something that is directly related to Passover. It's right there in front of us, there in the name. Sav means command from the same language as mitzvah. Mitzvah, mitzvot, the commandments, but also the practices, the rituals that guide and shape our Jewish practice. Mitzvah is a huge topic because it essentially refers to the doing part of Judaism. Torah u mitzvot goes the classic phrase. Torah and mitzvot, studying and doing. The mitzvot, then, define the contours of Jewish living. There are, by the classic rabbinic count, and as our page number reminded us today, 613 of them. And there are books upon books, libraries of books, all devoted to understanding the specific requirements of the mitzvot and applying them to everyday life. Thus the Talmuds, thus the great legal codes, thus the sifrei mitzvot, the, the books of mitzvot, books and books and books of mitzvot. The Torah, of course, also contains narrative and some of the greatest stories ever told, and yet the bulk of classical Jewish study for centuries has been focused on the mitzvot, on the law. When I went to yeshiva and then in rabbinical school, I studied mostly Jewish law. And to speak of law in this tradition is also to raise another huge topic in Jewish thought and theology, obligation. The fact of there being mitzvot, commandments in this covenant, implies that I, the commandee, am obligated. And that isn't just a technical point, it's existential. It shapes a certain kind of awareness and orientation to life. When I began to live in a practicing Jewish community, I could feel a sense of duty, a sense of obligation, all around hovering in the air, almost like a weight or a weightiness. And I have to tell you, I loved that feeling. In this freedom-loving society of ours, we tend to recoil from the idea of obligation. We associated it with burden or even oppression. But I loved feeling obligated that I had things to attend to because it lent life a sense of purpose and gravity. My actions mattered. That sense of obligation is part of what drew me into Jewish life. And one of the things that drew me so powerfully to Ikar when I first visited here was that here too, there was a deep sense of obligation hovering in the air. Because one of the things that Rabbi Braus has done so magnificently well in this community is to remind us that we are obligated. We are obligated to fix the world. We are obligated to love the stranger. We are obligated to fight for justice. These aren't just nice ideas. These are obligations. And we are not free, as Rabbi Tarfon famously said, to exempt ourselves from doing the work that must be done. Rabbi Brass's reminder, so well articulated, shot through the Jewish conversation like a lightning bolt, energizing and awakening us in part because Jewish communities of practice, even the most attendant to their obligations, 
have often neglected these mitzvot. In yeshiva, I said, we, we studied the law all day long, but we studied mainly the laws of Shabbat, or the laws of Kashrut, maybe the laws of how to check your lulav or your mezuzah. But we spent very little time studying the laws of not oppressing the foreigner, or the laws of, of not standling, standing idly by as your brother's blood was shed. We spent very little time, in other words, thinking about justice. It was here at Ikar that I began for the first time to take my justice obligations seriously. And don't get me wrong, I, I, I believed in this stuff. I always believed in this stuff. I believed that human beings were created with inherent and inviolable dignity. I believed that human power was corrupting and dangerous. I believed that arriving at an era of global peace was the goal of history. And I recognized these as Jewish values. But I didn't do anything about them. I mean, God bless those who did, but my life was filled with other things, with mitzvot, with my religious obligations, which I practiced mostly to bring me into some kind of contact with God. But when I came to Ikar, when I heard the Torah from the pulpit here, when I attended our full to bursting minyan setic organizing meetings, when I saw my congregants marching in the streets or delivering food and supplies to a crisis or knocking on doors to get out the vote and doing all that with the same zrizut, the same religious fervor, the same commitment to fulfill it, fulfilling our obligations that I recognized well from my yeshiva days, when I witnessed all of that, I began to ask myself, well, what are you doing to create a more just society? Not much, I realized. So it was here at Ikar that I began to think more about those obligations, about those mitzvot. And I began to study and teach them more and to take note of them in the Torah. And the more I thought about it, the more I began to understand something major happening in the Torah, something big. And it's big Shabbos, after all. So now I want to tell you something big that I learned at Ikar. And it's something I feel like I could only have learned here. And that is this. I have come to believe that the two supreme values in the Torah, the, the top two, dare I say, are justice and holiness. Mishpat and Kedusha. I, I found myself saying that at some point early on in my time here, almost as if I was wondering about it or working something out. And then I found myself saying it more and more and to realize that I believed it. I would usually be saying it right around this time of year, just as, a, as we were moving from the book of Exodus to the book of Leviticus. Because it's clear enough that the book of Leviticus re revolves around the value of holiness or sanctity. It deals with the work of the mikdash, the sanctuary. That work is performed by the priests who are, as the high priest's crown says, kodesh lashem, holy unto God. That same high priest enters once a year, the Holy of Holies, the Kodesh HaKadashim. Even the sometimes gruesome laws of impurity and disease are really all about how to remain in a state of purity so that one can enter into holy space. I, I think it's relatively uncontroversial to say that Leviticus is especially concerned with the question of how we can find some contact with holiness. So 
in that moment of transition into Leviticus, looking back at Exodus, while working here at Ikar, I began to realize that Exodus is especially concerned with the question of how can we find justice in this world? Now, that may sound like a relatively obvious thing to say here at Ikar, but it's not obvious. It's not obvious because you might have said, well, what is Exodus about? Exodus is about God's power, Vurat Hashem, or Exodus is about revelation. Mount, Mount Sinai is its climax, or Exodus is about the formation of the Jewish people. Come to think of it, where, where do I get off telling you that Exodus is about justice or that Leviticus is about holiness or that these are the top two values in the Torah? Here's a rule of thumb. You should be very suspicious when anyone tells you that this is the top value or the top two or the top ten in Judaism. Our tradition is far too complex and multivocal for that kind of simplistic formulation. So let me just back up and say that I mean all of this only in one very particular way. I mean it in terms of the mitzvot, the legal part of the Torah. Not the story, which contains many values and themes and principles, which we'll be discussing all night long next week, but the action-oriented, behavioral, obligatory part of the Torah, I believe, is generally interested in two things, justice and holiness, mishpat and kedusha. And the most explicit proof of this is that the first two great legal codes in the Torah, one comes in Exodus, and the other in Leviticus, academics refer to them as the covenant code and the holiness code, but we tend to think of them by the names of the parshot that contain them, mishpatim and kedoshim, or you might say the mitzvot of justice and the mitzvot of holiness. Now, this parallelism in the Torah came to me as something of a revelation. Is it that explicit? There are two kinds of mitzvot, justice mitzvot and holiness mitzvot. But, but of course, I soon realized I'm not the first to think about it this way. This division is something that our sages articulated for us a long, long time ago. But they used slightly different terminology for the two categories, which they borrowed from the verse, et mishpatai ta'asu ve'et chukotai tishmeru. Do my mishpatim and observe my and the word they used was chukim. Now, mishpatim, as the rabbis say in the Talmud in Yoma, mishpatim are the things that if they had not been written, justice would demand that they be written. That is some kind of natural law, intuitive and fundamental. The things which every society eventually recognizes are necessary for surviving and thriving as human beings. And the Talmud gives examples like murder and theft, Ten Commandments kind of stuff, justice, that which justice demands. And what's the other category? Chukim, which we might translate as decrees or edicts, the rabbis um, say, those are the strange ritual laws that we follow that others might look at us and mock us for. And they give examples like not eating pork, not wearing wool and linen together, the purification of the leper, and significantly, the Yom Kippur scapegoat sacrifice. All, notably, mitzvot found in Leviticus. 
And yes, they're called chukim, or decrees here, but where is this verse that tells us to observe these decrees? In Leviticus chapter 18, right smack dab in the middle of the holiness code. So these are the holiness mitzvot. And they appear a little odd. They're things that the Talmud says you yourself might question. Shema tomar tohuhem. You might say these are meaningless. And so the Talmud concludes, why do we do these things? Things like keeping kosher? Because as the holiness code keeps repeating and repeating, ani Hashem, because I'm God. And this is what I want from you. That, that's it. They don't have some other principle that they're pushing us toward like justice. They're just about getting close to God. And the experience of getting close to God, getting into that sacred space, is one that we call Kedusha. And sometimes, in search of a spiritual experience, in search of divinity, we do things that don't make sense. And that, I think, is because Kedusha is about being in a special relationship with God, a committed, loving relationship. We use that same language, after all, for sanctifying human love, kiddushin. Our word for, for marriage means being dedicated to one another. And so kedusha is about being dedicated to and devoted to God. Kadosh Hashem. Why? Just for its own sake, just for the bliss and the wonder and the feeling of transcendence that love brings. It's a, it's a glorious experience. But it's not enough. We can't get so lost in the spiritual experience that we forget about the world around us. We have to be reminded, I had to be reminded, of our obligations to each other, to society, to history. And for that, we need mishpatim. And that's why they have to be written down. Why, as the Talmud says, justice demands that they be written down, even though on some level, we ought to know better ourselves. Because we need to be reminded, as I have been reminded by this community, by, by Ikar, by you, of my obligations to the world. And, you know, maybe we all need to be reminded of something. Maybe these two categories are distinct in the Torah precisely because there are different kinds of people and different kinds of Jews already drawn in one direction or another. Some of us are here because we're hungry for a spiritual experience. We're ready to dive into it, to follow all the intricate rules of prayer and diet and holidays and to find sparks of holiness hidden in the details. But they need to be reminded not to get so lost in the details that they tune out of the big picture. They need to be reminded that feeding the poor and freeing the oppressed is every bit as much our obligation as fasting on Yom Kippur or scrupulous, scrupulously observing Shabbat. And some of us are here because we're full of fire and vision and we're ready to change the world, to shake off the cords of wickedness. We're mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore. Justice demands it of us. But they need to be reminded not to get so lost in the struggle that they forget to step back and take a breath and take in the divine majesty of it all. They need to create spaces of holiness in their lives, perhaps 
by taking on rituals that seem at first to make no sense, like scrupulously observing Shabbat, but end up bringing us peace of mind and maybe even bringing us into contact with the Holy Land. And so what this legal tradition, this tradition of mitzvot is telling us, what our tradition always tells us is that we need both. More than that, in fact, that we are obligated in both. Both is really the supreme Jewish value, isn't it? Um, the, the covenant that we are in demands justice of us, and it invites us into holy spaces. Mishpatim and chukim. It obligates us to care for the widow, the orphan, and the stranger because we must, we will not survive as a human community otherwise. And it tells us not to mix wool and linen. Just because. Because there's something more to this life than mere survival. Something mysterious and transcendent that this tradition obligates us to search for. And you knew I was going to say both. But ultimately, it isn't just both. It's both together, each infused with the other. Once we identify these two distinct supreme values in our legal tradition, the next step is to begin to think about what it would mean to unite them, to synthesize them. A holy justice and a just holiness. A holy chutzpah and a chutzpah a holiness. Um, and you know, there is one time of year that trains us to do them both at once, and that is Pesach. Passover, which is sometimes called Chag HaMatzot, the festival of Matzot, but it's a visual pun that is meant to indicate that it is also Chag HaMitzvot, the festival of mitzvot, because it is on Passover that we first received our mitzvot, and they were chukim, holiness mitzvot, holidays and sacrifices, but they are used to remind us of God's mishpat, Passover takes the story of a great struggle to bring justice into the world with shfatim gadolim, great judgments against wickedness. And it sanctifies it with a ceremony. A ceremony that we will begin on Wednesday night with kadesh, a kiddush, a sanctification of our struggle for justice. And you know who gets this? The wise child from the Haggadah. What is the wise child's question? What are these testimonies? What are you testifying? And the chukim and the mishpatim and the holiness mitzvot and the justice mitzvot, which the Lord your God commanded you. The mitzvot, the study of the mitzvot and the practice of the mitzvot are there to make us wiser, to remind us of what we need to be reminded of. And my time at Ikar has made me wiser, has reminded me of what I needed to be reminded of. So I want to thank you all. I want to thank you all for an incredible five years and wish you a Chag Hasher V'Sameach and Shabbat Shalom. And I believe Musaf will begin very quickly on page 184.
Hi, it's Rabbi Brass again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you, maybe even in person, sometime soon.